Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 7 of The Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker. Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. Chapter 7. Ulanga. Mr. Salton had an appointment for six o'clock at Liverpool. When he had driven off, Sir Nathaniel took Adam by the arm. "'May I come with you for a while to your study? I want to speak to you privately without your uncle knowing about it, or even what the subject is. You don't mind, do you? It is not idle curiosity. No, no. No, no. It is on the subject to which we are all committed.' "'Is it necessary to keep my uncle in the dark about it? He might be offended.' It is not necessary, but it is advisable. It is for his sake that I asked. My friend is an old man, and it might concern him unduly, even alarm him. I promise you that there shall be nothing that could cause him anxiety in our silence, or at which he could take umbrage. "'Go on, sir,' said Adam simply. "'You see, your uncle is now an old man. I know it, for we were boys together.' He has led an uneventful and somewhat self-contained life, so that any such condition of things as has now arisen is apt to perplex him from its very strangeness. In fact, any new matter is trying to old people. It has its own disturbances and its own anxieties, and neither of these things are good for lives that should be restful. Your uncle is a strong man, with a very happy and placid nature. Given health and ordinary conditions of life, there is no reason why he should not live to be a hundred. You and I, therefore, who both love him, though in different ways, should make it our business to protect him from all disturbing influences. I am sure you will agree with me that any labor to this end would be well spent. All right, my boy, I see your answer in your eyes, so we need say no more of that. And now—here his voice changed—tell me all that took place at that interview. There are strange things in front of us, how strange we cannot at present even guess. Doubtless some of the difficult things to understand which lie behind the veil will in time be shown to us to see and to understand. In the meantime, all we can do is to work patiently, fearlessly, and unselfishly, to an end that we think is right. You had got so far as where Lilla opened the door to Mr. Caswell and the Negro. You also observed that Mimi was disturbed in her mind at the way Mr. Caswell looked at her cousin. Certainly, though disturbed is a poor way of expressing her objection. Can you remember well enough to describe Caswell's eyes, and how Lilla looked, and what Mimi said and did? Also Ulanga, Caswell's West African servant. I'll do what I can, sir. All the time Mr. Caswell was staring, he kept his eyes fixed and motionless, but not as if he was in a trance. His forehead was wrinkled up, as it is when one is trying to see through or into something. At the best of times his face was not a gentle expression, but when it was screwed up like that it was almost diabolical. It frightened poor Lilla so that she trembled, and after a bit got so pale that I thought she had fainted. However, she held up and tried to stare back, but in a feeble kind of way. Then Mimi came close and held her hand. That braced her up, 
and, still never ceasing her return stare, she got color again and seemed more like herself. Did he stare too? More than ever, the weaker Lilla seemed, the stronger he became, just as if he were feeding on her strength. All at once she turned round, threw up her hands, and fell down in a faint. I could not see what else happened just then, for Mimi had thrown herself on her knees beside her and hid her from me. Then there was something like a black shadow between us, and there was the nigger looking more like a malignant devil than ever. I am not usually a patient man, and the sight of that ugly devil is enough to make one's blood boil. When he saw my face he seemed to realize danger, immediate danger, and slunk out of the room as noiselessly as if he had been blown out. I learned one thing, however. He is an enemy, if ever a man had one. "'That still leaves us three to two, put in Sir Nathaniel. Then Caswell slunk out, much as the nigger had done. When he had gone, Lilla recovered at once. "'Now,' said Sir Nathaniel, anxious to restore peace, "'have you found out anything yet regarding the negro? I am anxious to be posted regarding him.' I fear there will be, or may be, grave trouble with him. Yes, sir, I have heard a great deal about him. Of course it is not official, but hearsay must guide us at first. You know my man Davenport, private secretary, confidential man of business, and general factorum. He is devoted to me, and has my full confidence. I asked him to stay on board the West African, and have a good look round, and find out what he could about Mr. Coswell. Naturally, he was struck with the aboriginal savage. He found one of the ship's stewards, who had been on the regular voyages to South Africa. He knew Ulanga, and had made a study of him. He is a man who gets on well with niggers, and they open their hearts to him. It seems that this Ulanga is quite a great person in the nigger world of the African West Coast. He has the two things which men of his own color respect. He can make them afraid, and he is lavish with money." I don't know whose money, but that does not matter. They are always ready to trumpet his greatness. Evil greatness it is, but neither does that matter. Briefly, this is his history. He was originally a witch-finder, about as low an occupation as exists amongst aboriginal savages. Then he got up in the world and became an obi-man, which gives an opportunity to wealth, via blackmail. Finally, he reached the highest honor in hellish service. He became a user of voodoo, which seems to be a service of the utmost baseness and cruelty. I was told some of his deeds of cruelty, which are simply sickening. They made me long for an opportunity of helping to drive him back to hell. You might think, to look at him, that you could measure in some way the extent of his vileness. But it would be a vain hope. Monsters such as he is— belong to an earlier and more rudimentary stage of barbarism. He is in his way a clever fellow, for a nigger, but is none the less dangerous or the less hateful for that. The men in the ship told me that he was a collector. Some of them had seen his collections. Such collections! All that was potent for evil in bird or beast or even in fish. Beaks that could break and rend and tear— all the birds represented were of a predatory kind. Even the fishes are those which are born to destroy, to wound, to torture. The collection, I assure you, was an object lesson in human malignity. This being has enough evil in his face to frighten even a strong man. 
it is little wonder that the sight of it put that poor girl into a dead faint. Nothing more could be done at the moment, so they separated. Adam was up in the early morning, and took a smart walk around the brow. As he was passing Diana's grove, he looked in on the short avenue of trees, and noticed the snakes killed on the previous morning by the mongoose. They all lay in a row, straight and rigid, as if they had been placed by hands. Their skins seemed damp and sticky, and they were covered all over with ants and other insects. They looked loathsome, so after a glance he passed on. A little later, when his steps took him, naturally enough, past the entrance to Mercy Farm, he was passed by the negro, moving quickly under the trees wherever there was shadow. Laid across one extended arm, looking like dirty towels across a rail, he had the horrid-looking snakes. He did not seem to see Adam. No one was to be seen at Mercy except a few workmen in the farmyard. So, after waiting on the chance of seeing Mimi, Adam began to go slowly home. Once more he was passed on the way. This time it was by Lady Arabella, walking hurriedly and so furiously angry that she did not recognize him, even to the extent of acknowledging his bow. When Adam got back to Lesser Hill, he went to the coach-house where the box with the mongoose was kept, and took it with him, intending to finish at the mound of stone what he had begun the previous morning with regard to the extermination. He found that the snakes were even more easily attacked than on the previous day. No less than six were killed in the first half-hour. As no more appeared, he took it for granted that the morning's work was over, and went towards home. The mongoose had by this time become accustomed to him, and was willing to let himself be handled freely. Adam lifted him up and put him on his shoulder and walked on. Presently he saw a lady advancing towards him, and recognized Lady Arabella. Hitheretofore the mongoose had been quiet, like a playful, affectionate kitten. But when the two got close, Adam was horrified to see the mongoose in a state of the wildest fury, with every hair standing on end, jump from his shoulder and run towards Lady Arabella. It looked so furious and so intent on attack that he called a warning. "'Look out! Look out! The animal is furious and means to attack!' Lady Arabella looked more than ever disdainful and was passing on. The mongoose jumped at her in a furious attack. Adam rushed forward with his stick, the only weapon he had. But just as he got within striking distance, the lady drew out a revolver and shot the animal, breaking his backbone. Not satisfied with this, she poured shot after shot into him till the magazine was exhausted. There was no coolness or hauteur about her now. She seemed more furious even than the animal, her face transformed with hate and as determined to kill as he had appeared to be. Adam, not knowing exactly what to do, lifted his hat in apology and hurried on to Lesser Hill. End of chapter 7 This recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 of The Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush Chapter Eight: Survivals. At breakfast, Sir Nathaniel noticed that Adam was put out about something, but he said nothing. The lesson of silence is better remembered in age than in youth. When they were both in the study, where Sir Nathaniel followed him, 
Adam at once began to tell his companion of what had happened. Sir Nathaniel looked graver and graver as the narration proceeded, and when Adam had stopped he remained silent for several minutes before speaking. "'This is very grave. I have not formed any opinion yet, but it seems to me at first impression that this is worse than anything I had expected.' "'Why, sir?' said Adam. "'Is the killing of a mongoose, no matter by whom, so serious a thing as all that?' His companion smoked on quietly for quite another few minutes before he spoke. "'When I have properly thought it over, I may moderate my opinion. But in the meantime, it seems to me that there is something dreadful behind all this, something that may affect all our lives. That may mean the issue of life or death to any of us.' Adam sat up quickly. "'Do tell me, sir, what is in your mind, if, of course—' You have no objection, or do not think it better to withhold it. I have no objection, Adam. In fact, if I had, I should have to overcome it. I fear there can be no more reserved thoughts between us. Indeed, sir, that sounds serious, worse than serious. Adam, I greatly fear that the time has come for us, for you and me at all events, to speak out plainly to one another. Does not there seem something very mysterious about this? I have thought so, sir, all along. The only difficulty one has is what one is to think, and where to begin. Let us begin with what you have told me. First, take the conduct of the mongoose. He was quiet, even friendly, and affectionate with you. He only attacked the snakes, which is, after all, his business in life. That is so. Then we must try to find some reason why he attacked Lady Arabella. May it not be that a mongoose may have merely the instinct to attack, that nature does not allow or provide him with the fine reasoning powers to discriminate who he is to attack? Of course that may be so, but on the other hand, should we not satisfy ourselves why he does wish to attack anything? If for centuries this particular animal is known to attack only one kind of other animal, are we not justified in assuming that when one of them attacks a hitherto unclassed animal, he recognizes in that animal some quality which it has in common with the hereditary enemy? That is a good argument, sir, Adam went on, but a dangerous one. If we followed it out, it would lead us to believe that Lady Arabella is a snake." We must be sure, before going to such an end, that there is no point as yet unconsidered which would account for the unknown thing which puzzles us. In what way? Well, suppose the instinct works on some physical basis, for instance, smell. If there were anything in recent juxtaposition to the attack which would carry the scent, surely that would supply the missing cause. Of course, Adam spoke with conviction. Now, from what you tell me, the negro had just come from the direction of Diana's grove, carrying the dead snakes, which the mongoose had killed the previous morning. Might not the scent have been carried that way? Of course it might, and probably was. I never thought of that. Is there any possible way of guessing approximately how long a scent will remain? You see, this is a natural scent, and may derive from a place where it has been effective for thousands of years. Then does a scent of any kind carry with it any form or quality of some kind, either good or evil? 
I ask you because one ancient name of the house lived in by the lady who was attacked by the mongoose was the lair of the white worm. If any of these things be so, our difficulties have multiplied indefinitely. They may even change in kind. We may get into moral entanglements. Before we know it, we may be in the midst of a struggle between good and evil. Sir Nathaniel smiled gravely. With regard to the first question, so far as I know, there are no fixed periods for which a scent may be active. I think we may take it that that period does not run into thousands of years. As to whether any moral change accompanies a physical one, I can only say that I have met no proof of the fact. At the same time, we must remember that good and evil are terms so wide as to take in the whole scheme of creation, and all that is implied by them and by their mutual action and reaction. Generally, I would say that in the scheme of a first cause anything is possible, so long as the inherent forces or tendencies of any one thing are veiled from us we must expect mystery. There is one other question on which I would like to ask your opinion. Suppose that there are any permanent forces appertaining to the past, what we might call survivals. Do these belong to good as well as to evil? For instance, if the scent of the primeval monster can so remain in proportion to the original strength, can the same be true of things of good import? Sir Nathaniel thought for a while before he answered. We must be careful not to confuse the physical and the moral. I can see that already you have switched on the moral entirely. So perhaps we had better follow it up first. On the side of the moral, we have certain justifications for belief in the utterances of revealed religion. For instance, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, is altogether for good. We have nothing of a similar kind on the side of evil. But if we accept this dictum, we need have no more fear of mysteries. These become thenceforth merely obstacles." Adam suddenly changed to another phase of the subject. "'And now, sir, may I turn for a few minutes to purely practical things, or rather to matters of historical fact?' Sir Nathaniel bowed acquiescence. "'We have already spoken of the history, so far as it is known, of some of the places round us, Castor Regis, Diana's Grove, and the Lair of the White Worm.' I would like to ask if there is anything not necessarily of evil import about any of those places. Which? asked Sir Nathaniel shrewdly. Well, for instance, this house and Mercy Farm. Here we turn, said Sir Nathaniel, to the other side, the light side of things. Let us take Mercy Farm first. When Augustine was sent by Pope Gregory to Christianize England in the time of the Romans, he was received and protected by Ethelbert, king of Kent, whose wife, daughter of Cheribert, king of Paris, was a Christian, and did much for Augustine. She founded a nunnery in memory of Columba, which was named Cedis Misericondioi, the House of Mercy, and as the region was Mercian, the two names became involved. As Columba is the Latin for dove, the dove became a sort of signification of the nunnery. She seized on the idea and made the newly founded nunnery a house of doves. Someone sent her a freshly discovered dove, a sort of carrier, 
but which had in the white feathers of its head and neck the form of a religious cowl. The nunnery flourished for more than a century, when, in the time of Penda, who was the reactionary of heathendom, it fell into decay. In the meantime, the doves, protected by religious feelings, had increased mightily, and were known in all Catholic communities. When King Offa ruled in Mercia, about a hundred and fifty years later, he restored Christianity, and under its protection the nunnery of St. Columba was restored, and its doves flourished again. In process of time this religious house again fell into desuetude. But before it disappeared it had achieved a great name for good works, and in especial for the piety of its members. If deeds and prayers and hopes and earnest thinking leave anywhere any moral effect, Mercy Farm and all around it have almost the right to be considered holy ground. "'Thank you, sir,' said Adam earnestly, and was silent. Sir Nathaniel understood. After lunch that day, Adam casually asked Sir Nathaniel to come for a walk with him. The keen-witted old diplomatist guessed that there must be some motive behind the suggestion, and he at once agreed. As soon as they were free from observation, Adam began. "'I am afraid, sir, that there is more going on in this neighborhood than most people imagine. I was out this morning, and on the edge of the small wood I came upon the body of a child by the roadside. At first I thought she was dead, and while examining her I noticed on her neck some marks that looked like those of teeth.' "'Some wild dog, perhaps?' put in Sir Nathaniel. "'Possibly, sir, though I think not. But listen to the rest of my news. I glanced round, and to my surprise I noticed something white moving among the trees. I placed the child down carefully and followed. I could not find any further traces. So I returned to the child and resumed my examination, and to my delight I discovered that she was still alive. I chafed her hands, and gradually she revived but to my disappointment she remembered nothing, except that something had crept up quietly from behind, and had gripped her round the throat. Then, apparently, she fainted. "'Gripped her round the throat? Then it cannot have been a dog.' "'No, sir, that is my difficulty, and explains why I brought you out here, where we cannot possibly be overheard. You have noticed, of course, the peculiar sinuous way in which Lady Arabella moves— well, I feel certain that the white thing that I saw in the wood was the mistress of Diana's grove. Good God, boy, be careful what you say. Yes, sir, I fully realize the gravity of my accusation, but I feel convinced that the marks on the child's throat were human and made by a woman. Adam's companion remained silent for some time, deep in thought. Adam, my boy, he said at last, this matter appears to me to be far more serious even than you think. It forces me to break confidence with my old friend, your uncle, but in order to spare him I must do so. For some time now things have been happening in this district that have been worrying him dreadfully. Several people have disappeared, without leaving the slightest trace. A dead child was found by the roadside, with no visible or ascertainable cause of death. Sheep and other animals have been found in the fields bleeding from open wounds. There have been other matters, many of them apparently trivial in themselves, 
some sinister influence has been at work, and I admit that I have suspected Lady Arabella. That is why I questioned you so closely about the mongoose, and its strange attack upon Lady Arabella. You will think it strange that I should suspect the mistress of Diana's Grove, a beautiful woman of aristocratic birth. Let me explain. The family seat is near my own place, Doom Tower, and at one time I knew the family well. When still a young girl, Lady Arabella wandered into a small wood near her home, and did not return. She was found unconscious and in a high fever. The doctor said that she had received a poisonous bite, and the girl, being at a delicate and critical age, the result was serious, so much so that she was not expected to recover. A great London physician came down, but could do nothing. Indeed, he said that the girl would not survive the night. All hope had been abandoned, when, in everyone's surprise, Lady Arabella made a sudden and startling recovery. Within a couple of hours she was going about as usual, but to the horror of her people she developed a terrible craving for cruelty, maiming and injuring birds and small animals, even killing them. This was put down to a nervous disturbance due to her age, and it was hoped that her marriage to Captain March would put this right. However, it was not a happy marriage, and eventually her husband was found shot through the head. I have always suspected suicide, though no pistol was found near the body. He may have discovered something, God knows what, so possibly Lady Arabella may herself have killed him. Putting together many small matters that have come to my knowledge, I have come to the conclusion that the foul white worm obtained control of her body, just as her soul was leaving its earthly tenement. That would explain the sudden revival of energy, the strange and inexplicable craving for maiming and killing, as well as many other matters with which I need not trouble you now, Adam. As I said just now, God alone knows what poor Captain March discovered. It must have been something too ghastly for human endurance. If my theory is correct that the once beautiful human body of Lady Arabella is under the control of this ghastly white worm— Adam nodded. "'But what can we do, sir? It seems a most difficult problem.' "'We can do nothing, my boy. That is the important part of it. It would be impossible to take action. All we can do is to keep careful watch, especially as regards Lady Arabella, and be ready to act, promptly and decisively, if the opportunity occurs.' Adam agreed, and the two men returned to Lesser Hill. End of chapter 8 this recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 of The Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush Chapter 9 Smelling Death Adam Salton, though he talked little, did not let the grass grow under his feet, in any matter which he had undertaken, or in which he was interested. He had agreed with Sir Nathaniel that they should not do anything with regard to the mystery of Lady Arabella's fear of the mongoose, but he steadily pursued his course in being prepared to act whenever the opportunity might come. He was in his own mind perpetually casting about for information or clues which might lead to possible lines of action. Baffled by the killing of the mongoose, he looked around for another line to follow. 
he was fascinated by the idea of there being a mysterious link between the woman and the animal but he was already preparing a second string to his bow his new idea was to use the faculties of ulanga so far as he could in the service of discovery his first move was to send davenport to liverpool to try to find the steward of the west african who had told him about ulanga and if possible secure any further information and then try to induce by bribery or other means the nigger to come to the brow so soon as he himself could have speech of the voodoo man he would be able to learn from him something useful davenport was successful in his missions for he had to get another mongoose and he was able to tell adam that he had seen the steward who told him much that he wanted to know and had also arranged for ilanga to come to lesser hill the following day at this point adam saw his way sufficiently clear to admit davenport to some extent into his confidence he had come to the conclusion that it would be better certainly at first not himself to appear in the matter with which davenport was fully competent to deal it would be time for himself to take a personal part when matters had advanced a little further if what the nigger said was in any wise true the man had a rare gift which might be useful in the quest they were after he could as it were smell death if any one was dead if any one had died or if a place had been used in connection with death he seemed to know the broad fact by intuition adam made up his mind that to test this faculty with regards to several places would be his first task naturally he was anxious and the time passed slowly the only comfort was the arrival the next morning of a strong packing-case locked from ross the key being in the custody of davenport in the case were two smaller boxes both locked one of them contained a mongoose to replace that killed by lady arabella the other was the special mongoose which had already killed the king cobra in nepal when both the animals had been safely put under lock and key he felt that he might breathe more freely no one was allowed to know the secret of their existence in the house except himself and davenport he arranged that davenport should take ulanga round the neighbourhood for a walk stopping at each of the places where he designated having gone all along the brow he was to return the same way and induce him to touch on the same subjects in talking with adam who was to meet them as if by chance at the farthest part that beyond mercy farm the incidents of the day proved much as adam expected at mercy farm at diana's grove at castra regis and a few other spots the negro stopped and opening his wide nostrils as if to sniff boldly said that he smelled death it was not always in the same form at mercy farm he said there were many small deaths at diana's grove his bearing was different there was a distinct sense of enjoyment about him especially when he spoke of many great deaths here too he sniffed in a strange way like a bloodhound at check and looked puzzled he said no word in either praise or disparagement but in the centre of the grove where hidden amongst ancient oak stumps was a block of granite slightly hollowed on the top he bent low and placed his forehead on the ground this was the only place where he showed distinct reverence at the castle though he spoke of much death he showed no sign of respect 
There was evidently something about Diana's grove which both interested and baffled him. Before leaving, he moved all over the place unsatisfied, and in one spot, close to the edge of the brow, where there was a deep hollow, he appeared to be afraid. After returning several times to this place, he suddenly turned and ran in a panic of fear to the higher ground, crossing as he did so the outcropping rock. Then he seemed to breathe more freely, and recovered some of his jaunty impudence. All this seemed to satisfy Adam's expectations. He went back to Lesser Hill with a serene and settled calm about him. Sir Nathaniel followed him into his study. "'By the way, I forgot to ask you details about one thing. When that extraordinary staring episode of Mr. Caswell went on, how did Lilla take it? How did she bear herself?' "'She looked afraid, and trembled as I have seen a pigeon with a hawk, or a bird with a serpent. Thanks, it is just as I expected. There have been circumstances in the Caswell family which lead one to believe—' that they have had from the earliest time some extraordinary mesmeric or hypnotic faculty. Indeed, a skilled eye could read so much in their physiognomy. That shot of yours, whether by instinct or intention of the hawk and the pigeon, was peculiarly apposite. I think we may settle on that as a fixed trait to be accepted throughout our investigation. When dusk had fallen, Adam took the new mongoose, not the one from Nepal, and carrying the box slung over his shoulder, strolled towards Diana's grove. Close to the gateway he met Lady Arabella, clad as usual in tightly fitting white, which showed off her slim figure. To his intense astonishment the mongoose allowed her to pet him, take him up in her arms and fondle him. As she was going in his direction they walked on together. Round the roadway, between the entrances of Diana's grove and Lesser Hill, were many trees with not much foliage except at the top. In the dusk this place was shadowy, and the view was hampered by the clustering trunks. In the uncertain, tremulous light which fell through the treetops, it was hard to distinguish anything clearly, and at last, somehow, he lost sight of her altogether, and turned back on his track to find her. Presently he came across her close to her own gate. She was leaning over the paling of split oak branches, which formed the paling of the avenue. He could not see the mongoose, so he asked her where it had gone. "'He slipped out of my arms while I was petting him,' she answered, and disappeared under the hedges. They found him at a place where the avenue widened so as to let carriages pass each other. The little creature seemed quite changed. He had been ebulliently active. Now he was dull and spiritless, seemed to be dazed.' He allowed himself to be lifted by either of the pair, but when he was alone with Lady Arabella he kept looking round in a strange way, as though trying to escape. When they had come out on the roadway Adam held the mongoose tight to him, and lifting his hat to his companion, moved quickly towards Lesser Hill. He and Lady Arabella lost sight of each other in the thickening gloom. When Adam got home he put the mongoose in his box and locked the door of the room. The other mongoose, the one from Nepal, was safely locked in his own box, but he lay quiet and did not stir. When he got to his study, Sir Nathaniel came in, shutting the door behind him. "'I have come,' he said, "'while we have an opportunity of being alone, to tell you something of the Caswell family, which I think will interest you. There is, or used to be, 
a belief in this part of the world, that the Caswell family had some strange power of making the wills of other persons subservient to their own. There are many allusions to the subject in memoirs and other unimportant works, but I only know of one where the subject is spoken of definitely. It is Mercia and its Worthies, written by Ezra Toms, more than a hundred years ago. The author goes into the question of the close association of the then Edgar Caswell with Mesmer in Paris. He speaks of Caswell being a pupil and the fellow-worker of Mesmer, and states that though, when the latter left France, he took away with him a vast quantity of philosophical and electric instruments. He was never known to use them again. He once made it known to a friend that he had given them to his old pupil. The term he used was odd, for it was bequeathed, but no such bequest of Mesmer was ever made known. At any rate, the instruments were missing, and never turned up. A servant came into the room to tell Adam that there was some strange noise coming from the locked room into which he had gone when he came in. He hurried off to the place at once, Sir Nathaniel going with him. Having locked the door behind them, Adam opened the packing-case, where the boxes of the two mongooses were locked up. There was no sound from one of them, but from the other a queer, restless struggling. Having opened both boxes, he found that the noise was from the Nepal animal, which, however, became quiet at once. In the other box the new mongoose lay dead, with every appearance of having been strangled. End of chapter 9 This recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten of the Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker. Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. Chapter Ten: The Kite. On the following day, a little after four o'clock, Adam set out for Mercy. He was home just as the clocks were striking six. He was pale and upset, but otherwise looked strong and alert. The old man summed up his appearance and manner thus braced up for battle. "'Now,' said Sir Nathaniel, and settled down to listen, looking at Adam steadily, and listening attentively, that he might miss nothing, even the inflection of a word. "'I found Lilla and Mimi at home. Watford had been detained by business on the farm. Miss Watford received me as kindly as before. Mimi, too, seemed glad to see me. Mr. Caswell came so soon after I arrived, that he, or someone on his behalf, must have been watching for me. He was followed closely by the negro, who was puffing hard as if he had been running, so it was possibly he who watched. Mr. Caswell was very cool and collected, but there was a more than usually iron look about his face that I did not like. However, we got on very well. He talked pleasantly on all sorts of questions— the nigger waited a while, and then disappeared, as on the other occasion. Sir Caswell's eyes were, as usual, fixed on Lilla. True, they seemed to be very deep and earnest, but there was no offence in them. Had it not been for the drawing down of the brows and the stern set of the jaws, I should not at first have noticed anything. But the stare, when presently it began, increased in intensity. I could see that Lilla began to suffer from nervousness, as on the first occasion, but she carried herself bravely. However, the more nervous she grew, the harder Mr. Caswell stared. 
It was evident to me that he had come prepared for some sort of mesmeric or hypnotic battle. After a while he began to throw glances round him, and then raised his hand, without letting either Lilla or Mimi see the action. It was evidently intended to give some sign to the negro, for he came, in his usual stealthy way, quietly in by the hall door, which was open. Then Mr. Caswell's efforts at staring became intensified, and poor Lilla's nervousness grew greater. Mimi, seeing that her cousin was distressed, came close to her, as if to comfort or strengthen her with the consciousness of her presence. This evidently made a difficulty for Mr. Caswell, for his efforts, without appearing to get feebler, seemed less effective. This continued for a little while, to the gain of both Lilla and Mimi. Then there was a diversion. Without word or apology, the door opened, and Lady Arabella March entered the room. I had seen her coming through the great window. Without a word, she crossed the room and stood beside Mr. Caswell. It really was very like a fight of a peculiar kind, and the longer it was sustained, the more earnest, the fiercer it grew. That combination of forces, the overlord, the white woman, and the black man, would have cost some, probably all of them, their lives in the southern states of America. To us it was simply horrible, but all that you can understand. This time, to go on in a sporting phrase, it was understandable by all to be a fight to a finish, and the mixed group did not slacken a moment or relax their efforts. On Lilla the strain began to tell disastrously. She grew pale, a patchy pallor, which meant that her nerves were out of order. She trembled like an aspen, and though she struggled bravely, I noticed that her legs would hardly support her. A dozen times she seemed about to collapse in a faint but each time, on catching sight of Mimi's eye, she made a fresh struggle and pulled through. By now Mr. Caswell's face had lost its appearance of passivity. His eyes glowed with a fiery light. He was still the old Roman in inflexibility of purpose, but grafted on to the Roman was a new berserker fury. His companions in the baleful work seemed to have taken on something of his feeling. Lady Arabella looked like a soulless, pitiless being, not human, unless it revived old legends of transformed human beings who had lost their humanity in some transformation or in the sweep of natural savagery. As for the negro, well, I can only say that it was solely due to the self-restraint which you impressed on me that I did not wipe him out as he stood, without warning, without fair play, without a single one of the graces of life and death. Lilla was silent in the helpless concentration of deadly fear. Mimi was all resolve and self-forgetfulness, so intent on the sole struggle in which she was engaged, that there was no possibility of any other thought. As for myself, the bonds of will, which held me inactive, seemed like bands of steel which numbed all my faculties, except sight and hearing. We seemed fixed in an impasse. Something must happen, though the power of guessing was inactive. As in a dream, I saw Mimi's hand move restlessly, as if groping for something. Mechanically it touched that of Lilla, and in that instant she was transformed. It was as if youth and strength entered afresh into something already dead, to sensibility and intention. As if by inspiration she grasped the other's hand with a force which blenched the knuckles. Her face suddenly flamed, 
as if some divine light shone through it. Her form expanded till it stood out majestically. Lifting her right hand, she stepped forward toward Caswell, and with a bold sweep of her arm, seemed to drive some strange force towards him. Again and again, with a gesture repeated, the man falling back from her at each movement. Towards the door he retreated, she following. There was a sound as of the cooing sob of doves, which seemed to multiply and intensify with each second. The sound from the unseen source rose and rose as he retreated, till finally it swelled out in a triumphant peal, as she, with a fierce sweep of her arm, seemed to hurl something at her foe, and he, moving his hands blindly before his face, appeared to be swept through the doorway and out into the open sunlight. All at once my own faculties were fully restored. I could see and hear everything, and be fully conscious of what was going on. Even the figures of the baleful group were there, though dimly seen as through a veil, a shadowy veil. I saw Lilla sink down in a swoon, and Mimi throw up her arms in a gesture of triumph. As I saw her through the great window, the sunshine flooded the landscape, which, however, was momentarily becoming eclipsed by an onrush of a myriad birds. By the next morning daylight showed the actual danger which threatened. From every part of the eastern county's reports were received concerning the enormous immigration of birds. Experts were sending, on their own account, on behalf of learned societies, and through local and imperial governing bodies, reports dealing with the matter and suggesting remedies. The reports closer to home were even more disturbing. All day long it would seem that the birds were coming thicker from all quarters. Doubtless many were going as well as coming, but the mass seemed never to get less. Each bird seemed to sound some note of fear or anger or seeking, and the whirring of wings never ceased nor lessened. The air was full of a muttered throb. No window or barrier could shut out the sound, till the ears of any listener became dulled by the ceaseless murmur. So monotonous it was, so cheerless, so disheartening, so melancholy, that all longed, but in vain, for any variety, no matter how terrible it might be. The second morning the reports from all the districts round were more alarming than ever. Farmers began to dread the coming of winter as they saw the dwindling of the timely fruitlessness of the earth. And as yet it was only a warning of evil, not the evil accomplished. The ground began to look bare whenever some passing sound temporarily frightened the birds. Edgar Coswell tortured his brain for a long time unavailingly to think of some means of getting rid of what he, as well as his neighbors, had come to regard as a plague of birds. At last he recalled a circumstance which promised a solution of the difficulty. The experience was of some years ago in China, far up country, towards the headwaters of the Yangtze Kiang, where the smaller tributaries spread out in a sort of natural irrigation scheme to supply the wilderness of paddy fields. It was at the time of the ripening rice, and the myriads of birds which came to feed on the coming crop was a serious menace, not only to the district but to the country at large. The farmers, who were more or less afflicted with the same trouble every season, knew how to deal with it. They made a vast kite which they caused to be flown over the center spot of the incursion. The kite was shaped like a great hawk, 
and the moment it rose into the air the birds began to cower and seek protection, and then it disappeared. So long as that kite was flying overhead, the birds lay low and the crop was saved. Accordingly, Caswell ordered his men to construct an immense kite, adhering as well as they could to the lines of a hawk. Then he and his men, with a sufficiency of cord, began to fly it high overhead. The experience of China was repeated. The moment the kite rose, the birds hid or sought shelter. The following morning the kite was still flying high. No bird was to be seen as far as the eye could reach from Castra Regis. But there followed in turn what proved even a worse evil. All the birds were cowed. Their sounds stopped. Neither song nor chirp was heard. Silence seemed to have taken the place of the normal voices of bird life. But that was not all. The silence spread to all the animals. The fear and restraint which brooded amongst the denizens of the air began to affect all life. Not only did the birds cease song or chirp, but the lowing of the cattle ceased in the fields, and the varied signs of life died away. In place of these things was only a soundless gloom, more dreadful, more disheartening, more soul-killing than any concourse of sounds, no matter how full of fear and dread. Pious individuals put up constant prayers for relief from the intolerable solitude. After a little there were signs of universal depression, which those who ran might read. One and all, the faces of men and women seemed bereft of vitality, of interest, of thought, and most of all, of hope. Men seemed to have lost the power of expression of their thoughts. The soundless air seemed to have the same effect as the universal darkness when men gnawed their tongues with pain. From this infliction of silence there was no relief. Everything was affected. Gloom was the predominant note. Joy appeared to have passed away as a factor of life, and this creative impulse had nothing to take its place. That giant spot in high air was a plague of evil influence. It seemed like a new misanthropic belief, which had fallen on human beings, carrying with it the negation of all hope. After a few days men began to grow desperate. Their very words as well as their senses seemed to be in chains. Edgar Coswell again tortured his brain to find any antidote or palliative of this greater evil than before. He would gladly have destroyed the kite, or caused its flying to cease, but the instant it was pulled down the birds arose up in even greater numbers. All those who depended in any way on agriculture sent pitiful protests to Castra Regis. It was strange indeed what influence that weird kite seemed to exercise. Even human beings were affected by it, as if both it and they were realities. As for the people at Mercy Farm, it was like a taste of actual death. Lilla felt it most. If she had been indeed a real dove, with a real kite hanging over her in the air, she could not have been more frightened or more affected by the terror this created. Of course, some of those already drawn into the vortex noticed the effect on individuals. Those who were interested took care to compare their information. Strangely enough, as it seemed to the others, the person who took the ghastly silence least to heart was the negro. By nature he was not sensitive to, or afflicted by nerves. 
this alone would not have produced the seeming indifference, so they set their minds to discover the real cause. Adam came quickly to the conclusion that there was for him some compensation that the others did not share, and he soon believed that that compensation was in one form or another the enjoyment of the suffering of others. Thus the black had a never-failing source of amusement. Lady Arabella's cold nature rendered her immune to anything in the way of pain or trouble concerning others. Edgar Coswell was far too haughty a person, and too stern of nature, to concern himself about poor or helpless people, much less the lower order of mere animals. Mr. Watford, Mr. Salton, and Sir Nathaniel were all concerned in the issue, partly from kindness of heart, for none of them could see suffering even of wild birds unmoved, and partly on account of their property, which had to be protected, or ruin would stare them in the face before long. Lilla suffered acutely. As time went on, her face became pinched, and her eyes dull with watching and crying. Mimi suffered, too, on account of her cousin's suffering. But as she could do nothing, she resolutely made up her mind to self-restraint and patience. Adam's frequent visits comforted her. End of chapter 10 This recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 of The Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush Chapter 11 Mesmer's Chest After a couple of weeks had passed, the kite seemed to give Edgar Caswell a new zest for life. He was never tired of looking at its movements. He had a comfortable armchair put up on the tower, wherein he sat sometimes all day long, watching as though the kite was a new toy, and he a child lately come into possession of it. He did not seem to have lost interest in Lilla, for he still paid an occasional visit at Mercy Farm. Indeed, his feeling towards her, whatever it had been at first, had now so far changed that it had become a distinct affection of a purely animal kind. Indeed, it seemed as though the man's nature had become corrupted, and that all the baser and more selfish and more reckless qualities had become more conspicuous. There was not so much sternness apparent in his nature, because there was less self-restraint. Determination had become indifference. The visible change in Edgar was that he grew morbid, sad, silent. The neighbors thought he was going mad. He became absorbed in the kite, and watched it not only by day, but often all night long. It became an obsession to him. Caswell took a personal interest in the keeping of the great kite flying. He had a vast coil of cord efficient for the purpose, which worked on a roller fixed on the parapet of the tower. There was a winch for the pulling in of the slack, the outgoing line being controlled by a ratchet. There was invariably one man at least, day and night, on the tower to attend to it. At such an elevation there was always a strong wind, and at times the kite rose to an enormous height, as well as travelling for great distances laterally. In fact, the kite became, in a short time, one of the curiosities of Castra Regis, and all around it. Edgar began to attribute to it, in his own mind, almost human qualities. It became to him a separate entity, 
with a mind and a soul of its own. Being idle-handed all day, he began to apply to what he considered the service of the kite some of his spare time, and found a new pleasure, a new object in life, in the old schoolboy game of sending up runners to the kite. The way this is done is to get round pieces of paper so cut that there is a hole in the centre through which the string of the kite passes. The natural action of the wind pressure takes the paper along the string, and so up to the kite itself, no matter how high or how far it may have gone. In the early days of this amusement, Edgar Caswell spent hours. Hundreds of such messengers flew along the string, until soon he bethought him of writing messages on these papers so that he could make known his ideas to the kite. It may be that his brain gave way under the opportunities given by his illusion of the entity of the toy and its power of separate thought. From sending messages he came to making direct speech to the kite, without, however, ceasing to send the runners. Doubtless the height of the tower, seated as it was on the hilltop, the rushing of the ceaseless wind, the hypnotic effect of the lofty altitude of the speck in the sky at which he gazed, and the rushing of the paper messengers up the string till sight of them was lost in distance, all helped to further affect his brain, undoubtedly giving way under the strain of beliefs and circumstances which were at once stimulating to the imagination, occupative of his mind, and absorbing. The next step of intellectual decline was to bring to bear on the main idea of the conscious identity of the kite all sorts of subjects which had imaginative force or tendency of their own. He had, in Castro Regis, a large collection of curious and interesting things formed in the past by his forebears, of similar tastes to his own. There were all sorts of strange anthropological specimens, both old and new, which had been collected through various travels in strange places, ancient Egyptian relics from tombs and mummies, curios from Australia, New Zealand, and the South Seas, idols and images from Tartar icons to ancient Egyptian, Persian, and Indian objects of worship, objects of death and torture of American Indians, and above all a vast collection of lethal weapons of every kind and from every place. Chinese high-pinders, double knives, Afghan double-edged scimitars made to cut a body in two, heavy knives from all the eastern countries, ghost daggers from Tibet, the terrible kukri of the Gurkha and other hill tribes of India, assassins' weapons from Italy and Spain, even the knife which was formerly carried by the slave-drivers of the Mississippi region. Death and pain of every kind were fully represented in the gruesome collection. That it had a fascination for Ulanga goes without saying. He was never tired of visiting the museum in the tower, and spent endless hours in inspecting the exhibits, till he was thoroughly familiar with every detail of all of them. He asked permission to clean and polish and sharpen them, a favor which was readily granted. In addition to the above objects, there were many things of a kind to awaken human fear. Stuffed serpents of the most objectionable and horrid kind, great insects from the tropics, fearsome in every detail, fishes and crustaceans covered with weird spikes, dried octopuses of great size. Other things, too, there were, not less deadly, though seemingly innocuous. 
dried fungi, traps intended for birds, beasts, fishes, reptiles, and insects, machines which would produce pain of any kind and degree, and the only mercy of which was the power of producing speedy death. Caswell, who had never before seen any of these things, except those which he had collected himself, found a constant amusement and interest in them. He studied them, their uses, their mechanisms where there was such, and their places of origin, until he had an ample and real knowledge of all concerning them. Many were secret and intricate, but he never rested till he found out all the secrets. When once he had become interested in strange objects and the way to use them, he began to explore various likely places for similar finds. He began to inquire of his household where strange lumber was kept. Several of the men spoke of old Simon Chester as one who knew everything in and about the house. Accordingly, he sent for the old man who came at once. He was very old, nearly ninety years of age, and very infirm. He had been born in the castle, and had served its succession of masters, present or absent, ever since. When Edgar began to question him on the subject regarding which he had sent for him, old Simon exhibited much perturbation. In fact, he became so frightened that his master, fully believing that he was concealing something, ordered him to tell at once what remained unseen, and where it was hidden away. Face to face with discovery of his secret, the old man, in a pitiable state of concern, spoke out even more fully than Mr. Caswell had expected. "'Indeed, indeed, sir, everything is here in the tower that has ever been put away in my time, except—except—here he began to shake and tremble—except the chest which Mr. Edgar, he who was Mr. Edgar when I first took service, brought back from France, after he had been with Dr. Mesmer. The trunk has been kept in my room for safety, but I shall send it down here now.' "'What is in it?' asked Edgar sharply. "'That I do not know. Moreover, it is a peculiar trunk, without any visible means of opening.' "'Is there no lock?' "'I suppose so, sir, but I do not know. There is no keyhole.' "'Send it here, and then come to me yourself.' The trunk, a heavy one with steel bands round it, but no lock or keyhole, was carried in by two men. Shortly afterwards, old Simon attended his master. When he came into the room, Mr. Caswell himself went and closed the door. Then he asked, "'How do you open it?' "'I do not know, sir.' "'Do you mean to say that you never opened it?' "'Most certainly I say so, Your Honour. How could I? It was entrusted to me, with the other things by my master. To open it would have been a breach of trust.' Caswell sneered quite remarkable. Leave it with me. Close the door behind you. Stay. Did no one ever tell you about it, say anything regarding it, make any remark? Old Simon turned pale, and put his trembling hands together. Oh, sir, I entreat you not to touch it. That trunk probably contains secrets which Dr. Mesmer told my master, told them to his ruin. How do you mean? What ruin? Sir, he it was who, men said, sold his soul to the evil one. I had thought that that time and the evil of it had all passed away. That will do. Go away. 
but remain in your own room or within call i may want you the old man bowed deeply and went out trembling but without speaking a word end of chapter 11 this recording is in the public domain